we we all have a really um, amazing survival set of survival tools, none more unique and impressive than our capabilities at using and manipulating language. Pretty much the, the human mind, particularly, which can use language and symbols, uh, gives us an incredible tool which really uh, has resulted in our great survival advantage as a species. If you look at the evolution of language, it started with monkeys grooming each other. That uh, grooming in monkeys is not hygienic. It's a way for them to maintain close social connections and through touching each other and, and cleaning each other, um, they they basic. I don't know why I did a little gesture if you don't know what it looks like. Uh, they develop the social and maintain the social ties. But of course, if human beings, which uh, our cortex allows us to, on average, have about 150 people that we know, according to Dunbar, we'd have to spend all of our time grooming each other if we wanted to maintain the amount of social connections that we maintain in our lives. So language took over that function. You acquire English and we can immediately, without knowing each other, we can communicate, express emotions, express plans, express our histories, express our goals and aspirations. It gives us um, a unique ability to bond on a scale that is not only a scale, but a complexity that's unprecedented. However, the acquisition of language also comes with a unique weight to it. That weight is that language creates the expectation of meaning. Language, like all symbols, is a system where one sign, like a word or an image, stands for something else. That's called a meaning system. We expect our communications our experiences, we expect our lives, our existence to have meaning, to amount to more than just what the experience is. Because we exist in language, we expect things to have or signify or stand for something more than just the experience itself. That's what meaning implies. So each of us, because we live our lives in language, expect our lives to have a significance, a depth, a value, to matter in some way more than we generally can see. We feel that just like all of our words mean something, we feel that certainly all of these days the experience of waking up and falling asleep and finding food and meeting people and having relationships and having some relationships falling apart and struggling to make do. We like to believe, because we are language-bearing creatures, that it all amounts to some purpose or meaning, which is... Understandable, because that is the nature of language. It is because we use language that we expect more than just our experience. We seek a purpose beyond just the continual flow of experience day by day, the Sisyphusian accumulation of pushing rocks up the hill and then watching them roll back down. So some of us seek meaning in God, in establishing some external transcendent consciousness that looks down and we would like to believe has established a a set of rules, a set of purpose that precedes us that we are just not aware of. But of course, many philosophers and psychologists, the Buddha, one of them, said that 
meaning and purpose does not come from the idea of a god, that it will not suffice. The Buddha didn't so much say there wasn't gods. In fact, there are some rather charming suttas where the Buddha schools Brahmin gods, gives them Dharma talks. <laughs> and uh, he basically tells them they don't really, they're not as important as they like to believe they are. <laughs> really, there's one wonderful sutta where he does that. So um, the Buddha says we're not going to find the purpose, the meaning that we're seeking in something external, like a deity that we, of course, project largely based on our own unconscious expectations. People's idea of what a god is and how a god behaves is entirely based on their early childhood experience with their parents. Merely parental projections. But put that aside. Other people want that true meaning, that purpose, to be found in what's called a transcendent self some underlying eternal core of personality that they believe if you pull away enough of the worrying and the thoughts and the, the, all the stuff we get caught up in, they like to believe that somewhere deep down in there, there's some underlying core universal personality that if we could find it and connect with it would give us that purpose, that meaning, that transcendent reason. The Hindus and the Brahmins that the Buddha arose out of that landscape, they believed in what's called the Atman, which was the idea that there existed some transcendent core of personality. But the Buddha, in a series of very profound suttas, demonstrated that such an entity cannot be found. <laughs> or maybe it can. Uh, maybe that was its protest. But I'm here. Uh, the Buddha noted that if we pay close attention to our experience, we generally seek to find that true underlying self, that core personality in our thoughts, in our bodies, in our emotions, in our consciousness. But he notes that all of these things are changing all the time. In the Anatta Lakana, the Buddha says, let's go through it one by one. Pay attention to your body. Is your body really not changing? Is your body not growing old? Is it not sometimes in pain and sometimes in ease? And then your Feelings Are your feelings not changing countless times a day? And throughout the course of a week, tens of thousands of times, can you find an underlying true identity in that which is constantly in flux and changing? And the monks and the nuns said, no, we really can't. And then he pointed to consciousness and thoughts and perceptions and everything that we believe comprises or that we look for a sense of self. And he again and again and again showed that there's nothing that we can find that is lasting and unchanging that could possibly create a thread of identity from our earliest childhood through our adult life into old age. So why is it we feel that there's some connective thread, that there's some meanness, something about me that is uh, consistent throughout my life. Why do I like to believe that uh, there's something that connects the Josh of when I was an awkward, loud kid and uh, when I was six, tossed into therapy, (laughs) or the person I am today. Well, that is a, according to psychologists and neuroscientists, the illusion of continuity is created by our inner chatter. That narrative, the thinking mind, was demonstrated by Lev Vygotsky first in 
the early 1930s, I believe, and then and then afterwards, numerous psychologists basically showed that the constant story, the inner autobiography that we tell about our lives creates a sense of there being something uniting, something essentially me lying in there. So the Buddha said this constant searching for something that provides an essence or a lasting identity is stressful because we keep looking for it and we never find it. We keep trying to find that true self, that true underlying identity, and that eternal me, and we keep feeling it's slipping just outside of our grasp. And for the Buddha, that was the the dominant Sisyphus experience of the human condition. The searching for some transcendent uh, purpose amidst identity. Now, the Buddha did not say that we don't have a self. Far from it. You all have names. You all have identities in the world. You all go to work or have skills that you employ. You all have stories. The Buddha is simply saying that that self that you feel right now as you sit here listening, it's not going to be the same as you experience yourself tomorrow. Something will slightly have changed. And a few weeks from now, I don't have the luxury of believing that I have any enduring self because ever since uh, seven years ago, People started taping my talks and putting them up online. And I mean, I can barely listen to my voice as it is. But listening to the me seven years ago is astonishing and shocking. <laughs> uh, so... The Buddha said there's something liberating and joyous and, in fact, he said the, the beginning of stream entry, the entry into the profound path of finding peace of mind comes when we let go of this fierce belief that there's some underlying core of personality that we're locked to or chained by, that we're not fluid. The Buddha said that in letting go of that story of self, we actually let go of that which causes us suffering. We like to believe that the story of who we are provides meaning or continuity or purpose, but it doesn't. It creates frustration, according to the Buddha. Now, let's put the Buddha aside for a little while, shall we? In, uh, for many years until the philosopher Hume came around, uh, this was a very novel belief. Certainly most spiritual paths posit the idea of souls that are enduring, posit the idea of uh, lasting identities. Even uh, social formations did for a long time. And then in the uh, early 19th, 20th century, a bunch of philosophers known as the existentialists began to propose the idea that human beings are not born with any purpose whatsoever. We are thrown into existence, they said, and that it's our role amidst this purposeless lives that we find ourselves in to create our sense of purpose, our sense of authentic endeavor. And how do we do that? Well, according to... Sartre, and Camus, and uh, Dubois, and the other uh, greats of that era, they believed that we achieved a sense of identity, purpose, authentic uh, meaning in life in the choices we make. When we make choices that are constrained by peer pressure and social influences and compliance with completely hollow social agendas, they believe that we were reneging on our fundamental obligation to achieve self-identity through making choices that are not 
constrained that in every moment we have a choice to think for ourselves, to exert our free will and thus create our purpose. This was a wonderful idea for the 20 years it survived. (laughs) Before a bunch of pesky little postmodernists popped up and people with the names of Derrida, Lacan, Foucault, Deleuze, Guattari, they threw a monkey wrench in the works and they said, not so fast. And they said, in order for your argument to be true that the choices we make establish our sense of authentic purpose, there would have to be a subject or an I that is consistent, and that's not the case. Lacan said, for instance, the unconscious makes many of our decisions, and therefore we are not created or given any purpose because there's not really an underlying subject making our choices. Derrida said that language makes an I that is single, a subject, a me, impossible, because language is always sliding with multiple meanings, and we can never pin down what any word or idea means, so we couldn't even pin down what that word I means. At any given moment, I could refer to my body, my thoughts, my story, myself as not you. So there's no, according to Derrida, there's no I or subject that I can reliably understand or, or feel. And then Foucault and other thinkers basically said that the I is a construction of our society, the subject. So they basically, you don't have to take this all in, they basically said it didn't work. And yet at the same time, a bunch of psychologists rallied towards the idea of a true self. People like Kohat said, no, 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 not so fast. We do need to have a sense of who we are. We do need to have a sense that there's something special and unique and important about me. I need, we need that, for without that sense of a grandiose self, Kohat said, we will not function in the world. People will take advantage of us. We'll be frightened and anxious. We need to have a sense of an enduring, important self because without it, we will be pushed around and we will be unhappy and we will not take care of ourselves. So fiction or not, we need people to empathetically support us in our grandiosity and our healthy narcissism. Well, around this time, once again on the other side, neuroscience popped up and said, eh, not so fast. There's no place in the brain that could possibly host a lasting self. It just doesn't find itself there. It's just not there. There's no you. There's no part of the brain that's always turned on. There's no part of the brain that could possibly create that sense of identity that you're looking for. Finally, and here's where I'm going to take us to, around 1960s there was a guy named Gregory Bateson, and he said, well, he had a novel explanation. He said that human beings aren't made up of single personalities. We're actually made up of different sub-personalities that help us survive different relationships. He argued that human beings or individuals do not make sense alone. That alone we cannot possibly have a meaning, a purpose, an identity, because we are social beings with social brains that only achieve any purpose or meaning in relationship with other people. So our idea of trying to find Who's really me in isolation, he said, makes no sense. But Bateson argued there are discernible personalities that we can see in different situations and settings in our lives. So I'll give you an example. When I hang out with my 
punk e friends on Wednesday nights, and I go with them to the diner. That's kind of not my scene, but I go to the diner, and my personality, the me you would see there, would be remarkably different. <laughs> I don't sit and give long-winded. <laughs> highfalutin talks about the meaning of life. If I did, about 25 minutes ago, they would have said, what the, how are you on about? Just eat your veggie burger and shut up. (laughs) And when I'm, you know, if I would meet the parents of a girlfriend when I was in college or you know, as an adult, I would not present this personality or that personality. <laughs> it would make no sense if I met a set of adults that would, you know, are, are you going to be good to our daughter? Well, let me talk about the meaning of life first. <laughs> let me talk about, you know, Gregory Bateson and the Buddha's idea of self. no. Nor would I though, talk about the crap that I talk about with my friends on Wednesday night. So we all have different sub-personalities. The personality we bring out in our families that help us survive our families, the personality that helps us survive in different situations in work, a personality that we go in to get our needs met in our relationships. And they're all very distinct. And the only thing that gives them a sense of semblance is that ongoing inner chatter that narrates and creates the idea that it's still me moving through these different sub-personalities. But if we really stop the chatter and really pay attention to what we actually say and do and how we behave in situations, if you haven't done that, you're in for a very weird surprise. Because you're going to find that the way you behave in situations where you feel safe and secure and unjudged will be an entirely different personality than when you're in a group of people that you don't know. And the fact is, neither of those personalities is more authentically you than the other. For example, I grew up in a family with an alcoholic father who, until he became a Buddhist, was a pretty scary guy. So my personality in my family, when my dad was around, was one of acting out constantly. I didn't feel safe waiting for the drama and the explosive rage, so I would go and get it. I don't know why I would do that, but I (laughs) would act out and constantly get in his face and cause this, you know... He hated. He grew up in the Depression, and so he hated any ostentatious display of, 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 of wasting anything. So I'd sit there in front of him while I was drunk and pour ketchup all over my plate and then dive as the plates would be thrown at my head. This is true. And uh, so my personality around macho guys is one of I get far more ornery and uh, I take on a different kind of vibe. When I'm when I was with my family when it was just my mother, a completely fluid sense of personality appeared. A Josh that could joke, could play around, could I could write plays with my sister, I could sing songs I'd make up out of the blue. So because I felt secure, my personality became more fluid, more open, less rigidly defined. And there for me lies the real meaning or message for tonight's talk, which is you will find in life that we are all relational beings. We all change in the settings and the situations that we find ourselves in. But the situations where we feel the most secure, loved, accepted, welcome, are always those situations where we are the most fluid, 
where they we don't have a sense of core rigid self where we can dance and play and be creative and sometimes be funny and sometimes be listening and sometimes be laughing and sometimes be serious, sometimes be emotional and sometimes be intellectual. But it's in the situations and it's in those settings where we feel most guarded and threatened in groups of people we don't know, in situations where we feel evaluated or where we feel uh, reviewed, or where we don't know that we're appreciated, that we lock ourselves in. And that's when a personality seems to appear. Ironically, it's in the situations in life where we are the most guarded and frightened and threatened and small that the sense of something that's inherently me becomes most felt. But it's in the situations where we feel the most open and engaged and connected with others that we become the most fluid and the least caught up by identity stories. So, like the blue, the Buddha, the Buddha, like the Buddha <laughs> said, there's a great liberation that comes from releasing, from letting go, from transcending the idea of needing to find out who I am because that search not only is propelled by a search for a transcendent meaning that's not going to be found in identity. That true purpose is going to be found in letting go of identity in being open and spontaneous and loving and connected and creative and unguarded and as open to change as we can be. So we find, ironically, that point, if we're looking for that point of being, in the one place we didn't expect to find it, not in a true self, but in letting go of the search for one. That was the Buddha's message, and that increasingly has been the message of 21st century psychology and neuroscience and philosophy. Closing the eyes, and let's take three breaths together just to come into some feeling of alignment with each other. So a nice full deep in-breath and pull up those shoulders towards your ears and then breathe out through the mouth and lower the, the arms and the shoulders. So feeling the in-breath is energy and the out-breath is ease. So breathe in and tuck in your belly really tight. Tuck it in and then soften the belly. And one last nice in-breath, squinching the muscles of the face and the arms, tightening in them, and then when you breathe out, relax. And then allow the breath to come to its own natural rhythm, pace. Allowing the mind to return home to the body like an infant being returned to the cradling arms of a mother. Just that feeling of the mind, especially the busy, scheduled, (coughs) conscious mind returning to the sensations of the body, which it generally... We spend a lot of our lives avoiding as we tell stories about all the things we'd like to accomplish and build plans and agendas. And um, part of that whole way of perceiving and experiencing life through thoughts and narratives while there's much to be said for it, it tends to keep awareness of the body 
at bay. So, one way to return to the body is to find the sense of the in-breath and the out-breath. So, for example, feeling the in-breath moving the muscles of the abdomen and then releasing with the out-breath. And just see if you can develop both a rhythm and a feeling of uh, awareness of the breath sensations in the belly might need to slightly exaggerate the movements. And then finally to see if you can use the breath to relax and soothe that area of the body. So the breath becomes both an anchor for awareness but also a way to connect the mind to the body and to soothe, ease, relax, soften. Now move the awareness of the breath to the chest, perhaps the area in the rib cage that moves most clearly and discernibly with each inhalation and exhalation. And repeating the same process of finding the sensations and then seeing if you can come to a rhythm of the breath that feels really that feels really uh, easeful in the chest. Now you can bring the awareness of the breath up to the tip of the nose if you'd like. Feeling the breath energy coming in. And then when you breathe out, see if you can relax and soften all of the muscles in the face.
and then move to another area of the body where you can use the breath to soften, to relax, to create a felt sense of ease. So for example, what would it feel like if you could breathe in to the shoulders and then with each out breath just feel the shoulders gently relax or what would it feel like if you could breathe in through the eyes or the forehead and just feeling a sense of softening of all the micro-muscles in that area of the body with each exhalation. Using the awareness and the breath as tools to calm, restore, heal, deactivate, turning your spiritual practice into a time of self-care. Not just self-awareness, but care. What would it be like if you could breathe into the palms of your hands would the in-breath go there and then release through the back of the hands or could you just feel each out-breath slightly softening bring ease
Before we move to the second stage of the meditation, lastly, see if you could experience the whole body as a single breathing organism. What this might feel like is feeling the energy of the breath, the in-breath moving up from the floor into the legs, up the spinal cord or the back, all the way up through the body, bringing energy, expanding the chest and the shoulders, lifting slightly the head. And then with each out-breath, feel a slight release and the energy flowing back down the front of the body. Waves of soothing. So each in-breath bringing life to the body, a surge of energy, and then each long, expansive out-breath a release, a relinquishment, a letting go. So at this point, allow the felt sense of the breath and the body recede a little bit. And now see if you can make your awareness as expansive and open and spacious as possible. Hearing all the sounds both nearby in the body and distant from the street outside and beyond. The furthest sound to the left, the furthest sound to the right. Sense of sounds coming from above and below. And bringing into awareness the contact sensations you make with the ground. The contact made with clothes and limbs touching other limbs. The feel of the eyelids fluttering, the random twitching of the eyebrows or the muscles of the forehead. Awareness of how awake and alert you feel. Does the mind feel tired or does it feel anxious? Even when thoughts and memories and images float through the mind, not pushing anything away, but not clinging or attaching or picking up those thoughts and dropping awareness of what's happening in the present. Just allow the thoughts to pass through like clouds, 
without resisting. But using all of the senses available to you touch, taste, smell, sound, body sensations, just to keep you firmly open to the present and the mind as expansive as you can. And whenever the mind collapses around a thought and loses connection with all the senses that are actually occurring in the present. Just note that you've been kidnapped, whisked away from the present. Feel good that you've liberated yourself from the thought and just come back without any anger or frustration. The practice is again and again and again seeking liberation, seeking freedom from all those thoughts and worries and stories you can always pick them back up and live inside of them. But for now, let's just see if we can allow them to be no more important than any other body sensation, any other sound. The mind is wide and spacious as the sky. So at this point, we're going to begin a gradual shift from the meditation. And it's always worthwhile to take a moment at the end and reflect on the virtue of your practice regardless of how easy or challenging any meditation experiences all meditation is virtuous the more you Focus your awareness on the body and inner awareness of what's going on internally and retrain the mind from trying to solve every issue in life exclusively externally. We become not only more skillful, less harmful, less caught up in conflicts, more forgiving. It's of endless benefit to the people around us when we have a spiritual practice, not just to ourselves. It heals the emotions that seek our attention. It provides a secure base from which we can explore the world.
we don't harm or exploit while we do this, we don't addict ourselves to substances, we don't use up the world's resources. It's always worthwhile to just reflect on the beauty of your practice. And finally, when it comes time to open your eyes, do that slowly and try to leave some of your awareness at home in the heart, in the body, where you can take care of the breath and the feelings and all that deserves your attention. A balanced mind is a skillful mind.